This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning in the Word of God, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction. Father, we are so thankful that we have your word to come to. Scripture says that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. It is your word, in your word that you have revealed yourself to us, and by the study of your word that we come to know who you are and who we are and how we are to live in a way that uh, honors and glorifies you, in a way that reflects your grace and your love in our lives. We are, the Scripture says, to be imitators of you. And especially this is applied to the area of love for one another as well as the difficult area of application of forgiveness. And, Father, as we study what your word teaches about how you have forgiven us through the work of Christ on the cross, the extent of your forgiveness, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand that we cannot do this from our own energy, our own power, but we can only do this as a result of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and our own life. And you uh, desire to produce this quality of love in each one of us. And so we pray that as we study your word today, that God, the Holy Spirit, would make clear to us how we can apply these things and that we might understand that, that at the root of all of this is a simple reality that we need to trust in you and obey you, and you give us the resources through God the Holy Spirit in your word to apply your word, no matter how difficult or impossible the circumstances may appear. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. question I want you to think about as we've been going through our study on forgiveness is what can somebody do to you that you won't forgive? You know, I think all of us have a line somewhere. God doesn't have a line. And I want you to think about that. I think one of the most horrible things that can happen to any person, especially a woman, is to be raped. From the early 50s through the 60s, Helen Rosevere served as a uh, missionary, she's British, served as a missionary to the Congo, uh, and in the early 60s, as the Congo was going through a tremendous amount of unrest and rebellion, there were 
some of the rebel soldiers that came to the hospital that she had founded. Uh, they took her out and they raped her. Then they tied her to a tree. They took a book that she had been writing for 11 years about the growth of Christianity and the impact of missions in the Congo. She had one copy that was not yet complete, and they put it on the ground in front of her and burned it. A few years later, she returned to the Congo, and as part of her uh, uh, ministry, some of these same men had been wounded and were brought to her, and she realized and understood that it was her responsibility to minister to them and to give them the gospel and to completely forgive them just as God, for Christ's sake, had forgiven her. And it's a tremendous uh, testimony, and it is an example of the reality that, that whatever may happen to us in life, that it's not something that God hasn't foreseen, that God hasn't been aware of, and that his grace is sufficient to handle. Uh, Whatever sins we may commit, whatever sins might be committed to us, God's grace is sufficient. There's no reason for for shame. There's no reason for guilt for anyone who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because the core of the gospel is the fact that we have complete, total forgiveness because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that is the focus of this section in Colossians that we're studying, that we have a complete forgiveness in Jesus Christ. This is the challenge that I think every human being faces because at the very core of sin and the very core of our sin nature is the motivation to autonomy, to independence from God, to retaining in our life and in our thinking some measure of our own sufficiency that we have to help. And yet what Scripture teaches is it's, it's one or the other. It's either all in relationship to trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and the provision that God gives us, not only in salvation but also in the spiritual life, or we rely upon our own resources. There's no middle ground. It's not 50-50, 90-10, It is 100% dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ for everything, or we are depending on ourself. Any addition of our own works dilutes and destroys the grace of God. And one of the most significant passages, if not the most significant passage in, in the scripture that relates to the sufficiency of the work of Christ on the cross, is this passage we're studying now in Colossians two, eleven through fifteen. It is in this section that Paul is helping us understand what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the sufficiency of that work, our positional forgiveness in him not that is based upon a legal forensic forgiveness that occurred historically uh, at the cross. Now, as we've gone through this section, I've pointed out a number of different things, but the core section are these three verses at the bottom of the page dealing with the work of Christ on the cross that relates specifically to forgiveness and the cancellation of our sin debt. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, the Apostle Paul writes, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the hand 
written of requirements, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, as you read this through this in the English, the English editors and translators have made certain decisions about punctuation that are not necessarily reflected in the Greek text. But then if you look at the Greek text, a couple of different editions of the Greek text punctuate things a little differently. And I get into this. For some people, this is minutia. This gets into uh, some areas that may go over your head. And that's okay. There's a lot of stuff that goes over everybody's head. We can still grasp the conclusions and the bottom line and understand why uh, why certain things are the way that I'm teaching them. When I teach pastors, I teach uh, students how to study the Bible, going to the original languages, I focus on the fact that we have to pay attention to punctuation and that, that the basic unit of thought in any language is a sentence. Now, a sentence can be composed of multiple independent clauses, but it's that independent clause that's made up of a subject and a, and a finite verb that forms the core thought that's in that sentence. And there may be many other things that are said about that core thought, but it's that core thought that you have to keep in mind. Everything else just expands on that. It's like moving from an old black and white television uh, to a modern uh, HD uh, television, and it gives, it gives more definition and refinement and focus to the main action that's in the verb. And there are two finite verbs in verses 13 through 15, which I think should be uh, uh, formatted as one sentence. And the reason is, is that your main independent clause is always going to be expressed through that subject and finite verb. And in verses 13 and 14, there's only one finite verb in terms of an independent clause, and that is the phrase, he made you alive together. That's what this is all about, how God can regenerate us, can solve that personal problem of being spiritually dead, and how that is is able to be changed because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The second finite verb is in a subordinate clause, or or actually a compound uh, clause that uh, expands on the first statement, in verse 14, that he has taken it out of the way. It is an explanation of how everything he says from being made alive together uh, with him, how all of that transpires, how the forgiveness of sin takes place is because he had taken it out of the way. That is a, although that is expressed there as a finite verb. Now I'm going to explain all this a little bit as we go, but this is the sort of the flyover because this has tremendous impact, not just in terms of some important points of, of doctrine and theology, but because it comes home to us not only in our own personal mental attitude when it comes to facing uh, problems in our life related to shame, guilt, sin, but in order, also in order for us to understand how we are to imitate God in forgiving one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Ephesians 4.32 gives that command, 
and Ephesians 5.1, which sometimes is lost in terms of its connection, as I pointed out before, is a command to imitate God. We can't do this on our own. It can only be as a result of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, as we walk by the Spirit and study his word. I've also had this uh, <clears throat> breakdown up on the screen. I've highlighted the two finite verb sections in verse 13 and 14 in order to help us understand the connections that are here. Uh, someone may ask the question, well, as I refine or amplify the translation here, that, that on what basis I do that, and that's one reason I go through these technical things is because if you're looking at an at an NIV or you're looking at a New American Standard Bible or King James or New King James, uh, many times those translations are nuanced on the basis of the theology of either A, the publisher of that translation, or B, the translation team that is making that translation. Uh, for example, in the NIV, which was originally translated back in the 70s, it's been redone, and a modern NIV is out. If you ever read the belief section in the Houston Chronicle, the front page uh, of that little section, I think it was Thursday, had a picture of Greg Mott, who is the pastor of First Baptist Church, and the article inside was about the fact that the Southern Baptist Convention has now officially rejected the NIV uh, as, a, uh, as an acceptable translation in, for Southern Baptist churches. Now, that doesn't bind any Southern Baptist church to that decision, but First Baptist Church, under the leadership of uh, Greg Mott, has made that decision to uh, remove, and that for a church that size, this is a financially uh, significant decision. They're removing, they have all NIV uh, Bibles in the, in the pews. So they're removing all of the NIV Bibles that they have and they're replacing them with a, uh, with another translation. And part of the reason for that is with the modernization of the uh, NIV, they are going to a gender neutral uh, translation. And that reflects certain doctrinal and philosophical assumptions on the part of the publisher, which is Zondervan. And most people don't realize that Zondervan was a great publishing house. There are many great, historically great evangelical fundamentalist publishing houses, such as Zondervan and Erdman's and some others, that since the late 70s were bought up by secular publishing houses so that they could pat themselves on the back and having a good religious you know, publishing house under their umbrella. But they're secular. Their bottom line is, is not doctrine or theological correctness. It is uh, money. It is selling a translation. It is being successful in that business, and it, this impacts a lot of the titles that they sell, and it certainly impacts the philosophy of the translation. So translations do become uh, uh, impacted by the theological frame of reference of, of, the, uh, of the translator. And that is uh, true in this passage because this is a passage that proclaims a, a dimension of God's grace and forgiveness that really rubs at anyone who has the least bit of legalism in their, in their thinking. Because legalism says that somehow in some way the individual has to 
do something about their own sin. They have to feel sorry for it. They have to repent of it. They have to, uh, in some literature, they'll say you have to uh, believe in Jesus for the uh, uh, forgiveness or removal of your sins. Now, that's, that, that's right to a certain degree, and there's biblical texts that support that language, but they put the, in, in their gospel presentation, the emphasis is put on you need to deal with your sin, and the way you deal with your sin is, is the cross. And that's not what this passage is saying. This passage puts the emphasis on something else. It's, it's the difference in some way between looking at a glass and saying, oh, it's just half full. You're pessimistic, you're negative, you come and you look at that glass and you say, oh, it's half full. You're focusing on, on the sin issue. Now, that's that the sin issue isn't relevant to the gospel or a gospel presentation, but what this passage tells us is the focus isn't on the sin. The focus is on the message of forgiveness, and it's coming to the glass and saying it's half full. It's positive. It's, it's optimistic. It's looking at the reality that Christ has dealt with the sin problem at the cross, and that's not the issue or the focal point of the gospel message. Now, when we look at this breakdown of these verses, 13 and 14, the first phrase, he made you alive together with him, is, is the main thought that Paul is expressing here. He is emphasizing the fact that for every one of his Gentile readers, and that's who his readership is in Colossae, that they have been made alive in Christ. This is profound. This, this is different from any of the other uh, religious views that they're being seduced by. They need to understand all of what was necessary in order to say that we have this new life in Christ. And that is based upon an understanding of what Christ did on the cross, the transaction that took place there in relation to sin, and it's expressed in many ways uh, in terms that also have economic um, economic usage in everyday language. That's why I talk about this. It's a transaction that took place uh, on the cross. So this is the, the core section is he made us alive together with him. And this is done because of the fact of, that he forgave us of all of our transgressions. Now, we've gone through some of the details of this in the past, so I'm just going to kind of move through this quickly uh, as a reminder to, as we get into the next verse. starts off talking about the fact of the, the condition that they were in. See, Paul doesn't ignore the consequences of sin in the unbeliever. They're spiritually dead. Sin is a reality. He's not ignoring it and saying, okay, if sin's not the issue, I never mention it in a gospel presentation. You're saved from something. You're saved from a sin penalty. There's got to be an understanding of that reality. But the the focal point isn't on personal sin. It isn't there to rub the unbeliever's nose and the fact that he is this dirty, rotten, stinking sinner and he better, you know, repent of all of his sins before uh, he can experience God's grace. He, he, but he represents the fact that this is a problem. He's spiritually dead. So he starts off with this phrase, being dead in your trespasses and sins, which is a uh, participle that... <clears throat> Uh, expresses their condition at the time in which they were saved. 
Now, I just want to make a note because I hadn't uh, emphasized this or stressed this in previous lessons. This phrase, in your trespasses and sins, is a phrase that is often used by the Apostle Paul as an idiom to express spiritual death. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, for your trespasses and sins or because of your trespasses and sins. It says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, we have a similar phrase in John 8, 21 and 24 when Jesus is talking and he sa- tells his disciples that he was going away and you will seek me, or actually he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Now, it's clear that Christ paid the penalty for those sins, so he's not saying that you'll die for your sins. They're still going to be in a status of spiritual death. They're still going to be in their sins. He says, restates that. And uh, three verses later, he says, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, that is the Messiah, you will die in your sins. You will still be in your sins. And the clarity on this is then given in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, where in explaining the significance of the resurrection, Paul said, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Now, some people have tried to say, well, if you die in your sins, that means that you go to the lake of fire and you're going to end up paying the penalty for your sins. But for your sins is a different preposition and it doesn't mean the same as in your sins. And you can't do a word substitution of for your sins in the 1 Corinthians 15, 17 passage when um, Paul says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, you're still in your sins. What he's saying is you're still spiritually dead. He's not saying you're still going to die for your sins. It's not there. It doesn't fit uh, semantically in that in that context. So as we've studied in Colossians 2.13, this participle is going to uh, modify the main verb, which is to be made alive, and it's a present participle, so that means the timing of that is at the same time as the action of the verb. So at the time that God makes us alive, he's emphasizing the fact that it's necessary because we were spiritually dead. So it could be understood as a temporal sense when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, or it could be understood as concessive though you were dead in your trespasses and sins. They're very similar ideas, very close together, and either one conveys the idea that at the point of regeneration, our condition at that time is spiritual death. We don't have a relationship with God, and we are under condemnation. Now, the next key phrase here is that uh, main verb, sozo uh, apiao, which means to be made alive together with him, same uh, verb that's used in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, that God made us alive together uh, with Christ. This is the emphasis on regeneration. It's the main idea. All the other things that are said here are just background to this one glorious truth that we're made alive in Christ. Life only occurs uh, in Christ. But how does he do that? What are the circumstances? How is God able then to to, to deal with this problem that caused uh, us to be born in a, spirit, in, in a spiritual death state uh, from the beginning, from Adam's, Adam's sin. So how is God able to solve that problem? 
He does, and, and Paul expresses that through the use of a couple of different participles. And we've studied these, these words that are translated for forgiveness. Uh, charizomize the one here because that emphasizes the basis for forgiveness, which is grace. Understanding not the fact of, cre- of uh, forgiveness here, which is emphasized in other passages, but the grace basis that it is given freely to us and we are freely forgiven. And we're freely forgiven of all the trespasses. There is a cancellation. The word is a word used in, in, uh, in finance to indicate canceling a debt, uh, erasing a debt, removing a debt. All of these ideas are part of the uh, uh, idea that we have for forgiveness. It means to remove something completely. It's not there anymore. And we'll look at this a little more next time in terms of of the application of God's forgiveness to us. So we have to understand, though, the relationship of this participle to that main verb. He made us alive together with him. How? Now, having forgiven is a little nebulous. Is that in, in the English, we can't tell what the correlation is between that idea and uh, being made alive together with him, but it's very clear in the Greek because it is a, an aorist, uh, it's an aorist participle. It happens before the action of the verb. Now, the action of the verb is when you trusted in Christ as Savior. When any individual trusts Christ as Savior, that instant you're made alive together with him, but something had to happen before that, in order for God to be able to make you alive together with him. And that is a forgiveness that occurred at the cross. Not when you trusted Christ in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or last week, but when this forgiveness occurred, as we see at the end of the next verse, on the cross. So it has a causal relationship because Paul is explaining here the reason or cause or basis for God being able to regenerate us when we trust in Christ as Savior. And it has this sense of either uh, he made you alive together with him because he had already forgiven or canceled or nullified or removed those sins, or uh, after he had already forgiven or canceled those sins. So there's a clear temporal element there. I pointed out before these two different words for forgiveness, afiemi, which indicates um, the act of forgiveness, charizomai, which indicates the basis or the attitude underlying forgiveness, which is grace. The idea in afiemi is the idea of canceling something, just completely removing it. Uh, Charizomai emphasizes the grace basis for that, that it is freely done, not on the basis of anything that, that we do. Now, all of that is reviewed. We've covered that before. You should be getting a good grip on that at this point. In verse 14, it's a really an awkward place for a verse division because a, another participle uh, begins that verse. And so we have to ask the question in studying this, what's the relationship of that participle to the main verb? This helps us understand the dynamics, of, again, of how God is able to regenerate us. Uh, verse 13, he made us alive together with him because he had already forgiven or released us from those sins. Or 
Uh, and then verse 14 says, explains how he did that, I think, by canceling the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Now, that's the New King James, and they added a lot of verbiage in there in order to communicate the idea. They have the basic idea there, I think, and that is that this is a certificate of debt. There is an indebtedness that we have as a sinner that is the really uh, the indictment against us as as unbelievers, as those who are spiritually dead and unrighteous, there is an indictment against us from the Supreme Court of Heaven that has to be that has to be dealt with or eradicated. So we have these two participles in this slide. I've tried to show their relationship. They modify, explain, expand, give give depth to that main thought of being made alive together with Him. Because he had already forgiven us, that's the foundation that we'll see occurred at the cross. And how is he able to forgive us? By canceling the debt. And you see the close connection here between this grace idea, charizomai. He he could have used afiemi, but afiemi would would bring in the idea of canceling, and Paul wants to just do double emphasis here. It's almost as if he were a, a neophyte word processor user and he's underlined and bold-faced and italicized these two ideas so that we get the point uh, by using these, the, this kind of uh, verbiage. Because the forgiveness occurred at the cross on, God, on the basis of God's grace and what he did there was he canceled out this certificate. He wiped it out. The verb in the Greek is ex alepho. Alepho is a word meaning to anoint, and it has that idea of rubbing oil on something. And so when you have the uh, preposition ek added to it at the beginning, it means to rub out, to completely remove. The other night I was talking about uh, textual criticism a little bit and the fact that the, in the history of the, the receiving the Old and New Testament, there's a slew of manuscripts ancient manuscripts that we have, sometimes there are differences. Most of them are spelling differences or word order differences, and the, the process of analyzing these differences is tech, called textual criticism. One set of manuscripts that we have are called palimpsests. This is when you take a, 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 you have vellum or parchment, and you want to use it to write something else because paper was expensive, so you completely erase, eradicate, blot out what's on there, and then you write something else on it. Uh, sometimes that occurred with, with Scripture uh, so that we can go back to day with uh, certain kinds of technology and we can read what was originally written on some of these documents, and sometimes it was Scripture, and we can get uh, you know, another idea of, of uh, confirmation of the wording of the original, of the original text. So we have... This word alepho, which means to wipe out, blot out, rub out, erase, eradicate, or remove. That's the essence of forgiveness. When Scripture says we're to forgive one another as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us, that idea there is to rub out or eradicate or erase something that has happened to us, some offense from somebody, someone else to us, and we completely remove all evidence of it from our mind, from our thinking, so that it doesn't impact, influence uh, our thinking toward that person. Next time I'm going to talk more about the differences 
in our forgiveness of others in a in terms of our relationship to God and a, an application of that to the individual. But here we're talking about what God does at the cross is that this certificate of debt or this indictment against us is completely eradicated, removed, destroyed at the cross. That's how he forgave us, by canceling or removing, eradicating this uh, certificate of debt. Now, this word that is alepho, that, or exalepho that is translated there, is used a few times in the Old Testament to translate the Hebrew word macha, which is used in uh, various passages related to uh, sin. For example, Psalm 51.9, which I read through this morning, David's prayer of confession uh, to God for his uh, sin with Bathsheba and being part of the conspiracy or initiating the conspiracy to have her husband Uriah killed. Psalm 51.9, David prayed, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, in this passage, he's talking about our the believer's uh, experiential forgiveness from God, not the ultimate act of forgiveness that occurred at the cross, but the same idea occurs is that when we confess our sins and they're forgiven and we're cleansed, this same blotting out occurs. It's a complete erasure, removal of that sin so that, as Isaiah 43:25 says, God, God states, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's part of the essence of forgiveness is that we're not going to constantly remember some offense that has come from someone else to us. We are going to forgive it objectively in our own thinking, and it is removed or eradicated uh, from our own thinking. So we see this idea that that because he had already forgiven us or released us from sin at the cross, by the way he did it was by canceling or eradicating this certificate of debt. Now, the, there are two words only in the Greek text, whereas you see in the New King James here, certificate of debt consisting of decrees. We have six words that are uh, a translation of basically two in the Greek. The first word is this word, kyrographon, uh, cure is the word for hand. Graphon is the word for writing. We have autograph. That's how that comes over into, into English. And it just means handwriting, the uh, handwritten document or a written document. So it's a, a written document. In this, this context, it's a, the, the idea of a legal, legal document. Uh, uh, could be a, a document related to debt uh, or a document related to a criminal action. And then the second word is the word dogma, which comes down into English as, you know, the absolute principles within a certain religious belief. But the core meaning of the word dogma is the idea of a formal set of rules, a conclusion, an ordinance, a proposition, a decision, or a decree. So this is a written decree. It's the idea that this is a formal legal uh, document that indicts the sinner that this is what is eradicated or removed uh, so that it is no longer, uh, no longer the, the issue. Now, we've got, I want to change the slide a little bit so we have a little more room. So it be, verse 14 begins with this statement that, that he, he's able to forgive us 
because he had canceled or eradicated or removed this uh, certificate of debt. And I'm going to uh, retranslate that a little bit to uh, just call it a written decree uh, against us. And then that'll, um, I thought I changed that down. And it's us is important because that relates to Gentiles. Remember, the problem in Colossae isn't really dealing with a Jew-Gentile issue like Ephesians is. And um, so he's talking to Gentiles. That's important because most of the time when you read a commentary, you read in your study Bible, I would bet that 90% of the time this certificate of debt is going to be interpreted as the Mosaic Law. But the Mosaic Law isn't the basis of God's indictment of the human race. The, the things that violated God's character that are laid out and enumerated in the Mosaic Law uh, did not become sins because they were in the Mosaic Law. They were sins from the beginning. It is Adam's sin that plunged the human race into the condition of spiritual death. So the context here just can't really allow for this to be understood or interpreted uh, in the sense of uh, the Mosaic Law. The NIV, for example, translates this, the written code, and that seems to suggest that they're talking about the Mosaic Law. But, but <clears throat> nowhere in the context of Colossians to this point do we see any kind of specific reference to the Mosaic Law as an issue. But what we do see is the problem of man's condition, which is resolved by J Jesus Christ's payment uh, on the cross. Now, that takes us to the next clause. The second thing that Paul says, first he's been talking about the fact that God was able to make us alive together in him because he had forgiven us by eradicating or blotting out or destroying the certificate of debt against us. The next thing he says is how he did that. He says, and he has taken it out of the way. Now, the Greek verb here is the verb iro, and what's significant about this, and this is why grammar is so important in, in looking at Scripture, is it's a perfect tense verb. A perfect tense verb means that it's completed action. It's over and done with. This is like what Jesus said, uh, his last statement on the cross, uh, to tell us die, it is finished. It's a perfect tense verb. It means it's complete, it's done, nothing more can be added to it, it is over with, and the results will go on uh, in, into the future. And so that's the emphasis of a perfect tense Verb is it emphasizes action that's already completed in the past and it's focusing on ongoing results. So what Paul is saying here is that he has already taken it out of the way. He's already done that. It happened in the past. It's completed action. And the only time that could happen is at the cross, which he then makes clear in the next phrase, which is a uh, participial phrase, which explains how he did it, by nailing it to the cross. And that aorist participle there, remember an aorist participle, the action of an aorist participle is either uh, simultaneous with the action of the, of the main verb or it precedes it. Well, since this is a perfect tense verb, it would be simultaneous. So at the time, the, the way he took it out of the way was by nailing it to the cross. 
So it happens at the cross. Sin is dealt with at the cross. Sin is not dealt with when you, ultimately when you trust Christ as your Savior. That sin was already dealt with, paid for, completely eradicated for every human being at the cross. This helps resolve the understanding of unlimited atonement, that Christ paid the penalty for all sin, but, but the payment of the penalty doesn't apply that to the individual. It's not realized in the uh, experience of each individual until they trust in Christ, and only at that point are they made alive together with him. So we go back to the four basic categories of forgiveness that we've gone through in the last few weeks of First is forensic or legal forgiveness when the penalty is paid for at the cross. The second has to do with the realization of that in each individual's life that is ours positionally when we are in Christ. And this means that for the believer, sin isn't the issue. It doesn't mean you don't sin. It means you can't lose your salvation. And it means that, that the sin penalties, that Christ's death is sufficient for that sin penalty. And so there's no room in our life for shame, for guilt, for remorse over uh, failures that we can look at the cross, it's paid for, and this gives us not a license to sin, but the freedom and liberty to go forward and not be chained back to past failures or past circumstances. It also applies to our experiential forgiveness when we confess our sins to God, and then it impacts our understanding of how to forgive others. If you don't understand what happened at the cross, then you can't really forgive others. And we all struggle with this, but in forgiving others, it often shows, or our limitations often shows how our failures to really understand what happened at the cross. Remember my opening question was, what is it that you think of that if somebody does it to you that you just couldn't forgive? If you, there was anything listed there, to that degree, you haven't fully grasped the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross and its application in your thinking and in your life. So as we just wrap this up, sin is not the issue at salvation. This means that the individual sin is not the issue at salvation and your sin isn't the issue at salvation. And there's so many people who get so wrapped up about some sin that they've committed that they just can't understand and grasp the grace of God. Second, this doesn't mean that sin or the sin penalty or the reality of a person's spiritual death is ignored. It needs to be part of the gospel presentation, but it's not the focal point. I've heard horrible gospel presentations where the focal point is on, you're just a sinner and you have to repent of all that sin or, or you're never going to have salvation. And that's legalism. That is not an understanding of the grace of God at the cross. Personal sin isn't the issue in salvation and in gospel presentation. The third point of summary is that the focal point is great. The focal point is the sufficiency of Christ, that we have forgiveness, and we need to realize that, first of all, in terms of justification and salvation, by trusting in Christ as our Savior, because he has already eradicated that certificate of debt, and he did that at the cross. And then finally, the point of application, moving beyond the gospel, is that if Jesus paid it all at the cross and all of the sin is dealt with, 
then he solved the greatest problem we'll ever face. And no matter what problems you and I may face on a day-to-day basis with with, uh, failures or sin or what other people have done to us uh, or crimes that they've committed against us, that that pales in significance when you compare it to what we did against the character of God that's resolved by his grace at the cross. And that's why we keep going, I keep going back over this again and again and again. We have to understand these dimensions of the cross because when Scripture says that we're to forgive one another as God for Christ's sake forgave us, it then says be imitators of God. The more we understand and grasp the fullness of that forgiveness and the grace basis of that forgiveness, the more then that we're going to be able to do what is impossible naturally and that is to forgive people no matter how horrible that may be, recognizing that in God's plan it may be that very act of forgiveness on our part that gives them a tangible picture of the kind of forgiveness that they can have in Christ and that God can use that in bringing unbelievers to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to focus upon uh, the grace that you have uh, given us. What a wonderful thing it is that, that all sin is dealt with on the cross. That sin isn't the issue. You're not holding these failures up before us and calling upon us to do something about them, but that you completely eradicated that indictment. You remove that certificate of debt. It's canceled. It's it's removed. It's not the issue. The issue instead is Jesus Christ. The issue is believing or trusting in his work on the cross, understanding what that means, that he paid it all. And because of that, we have uh, true, genuine freedom in him. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid your debt so that all that you have to do is accept the free gift of eternal life, of forgiveness that is yours uh, because of what Christ is giving you in term, on the basis of his work on the cross. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the implications of, of this lesson, this passage, especially as it relates to our own forgiveness of, of those in our lives who need to be forgiven. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.